Our gospel lesson is found in John chapter 15. We are beginning in verse 18 and we'll work into the first part of verse 4 in chapter 16. Listen carefully to God's word. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have been seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these thi- all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks that our Lord Jesus' promise was that he would ask you to send the Spirit. And that you have then answered his prayer And the spirit of truth has come, proceeding from you and from the Son. He has come to us to lead and guide us into all truth. And so today we ask that you will speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fair warning, this is going to be intense. Jesus turns to a particular subject here at the end of John 15. He turns now to the subject of those who have been loved by God. He turns to the subject of their experience in this world. In John's gospel, Jesus presses us with polarities. There is the truth and there is the lie. There is light and there is darkness. There is what is born from above and there is what is born below. There is spirit and there is flesh. All throughout the Gospel of John, we find these polarities, dichotomies, contrast. And the contrasts are stark. Delineating two poles that stand in opposition to one another. And they serve to focus our attention on where we stand in relationship to Jesus. He leaves no room inside of those polarities. He leaves no room for a comfortable distance. 
And he also leaves no room for urbane neutrality that selectively relates to him. No, there is only a yes or a no. Jesus will have it no other way. He is uncompromising in the dichotomy. And it is precisely this binary way of thinking that challenges us. Because in Western culture in the 21st century, we are accustomed to choices and we're accustomed to options. In fact, there is a long philosophical tradition that has been building and growing that's brought us to where we are today, where we are somewhat allergic to this binary thinking, especially when it comes to religious topics. We inhabit a culture in which nothing is necessary and everything is possible. The world is a lump of clay, and any meaning it has is the meaning that we assign to it. Nothing is necessary. Everything is possible. And it's into that world, into that world of options, into that world of indecision, into that world of anxiety that has been created, that Jesus speaks, he barges into, and he doesn't ask in a compromising way, but rather he affirms and asserts all of his contrast and all of his poles, the truth and the lie, the light and the darkness, above and below, spirit and flesh. And inevitably, these contrasts create a divide. It's a divide that generates friction. It generates hostility. These opposites do meet at a certain point, and it's at that meeting point that the friction and the tension and the pressure builds. And Jesus here at this point in his long sermon, his long final sermon to his disciples, is preparing them for everything that is to come. But he's not simply preparing them, those disciples then and there. But he's preparing us here and now for what to expect when we who have been loved by God, the Father who sends the Son to bring us into loving communion with himself by the Spirit, when we have been set apart and when we've been brought into that communion, what we can experience in life on this earth as we await Jesus' return. So the question for us to ask and to answer this morning is very simple. What is it that Jesus says about the division between his disciples and the world? What exactly does he teach us about that division that exists, that inevitably will exist because of these poles of his teaching? Four things that we'll focus on this morning. First, we'll discover the root of that division. Second, we'll look into the substance of the division. Third, we'll consider the threat of that division to us. And fourth, we'll consider the irony of it. Let's look at each of those briefly. First, in verses 18 through 21, we see the root of the division. Jesus explains that he creates a division between his followers and the world 
that generates hostility. Because he speaks in these polarities, inevitably we have a division that exists between, you could say, the church or Jesus' disciples and then the broader world. There are two steps to how Jesus explains the hostility we encounter. First, in verse 18, Jesus explains that the world was hostile to him. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so first, the anger, the division, the tension, the pressure was exerted on him and towards him. And then second, Jesus explains that he has chosen us out of the world. In verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so it's very clear where the root of this division exists for us. It exists because we've been granted this great privilege of being chosen by Jesus. There's just one hitch that that great privilege creates a certain horizontal problem for you today. That yes, before the foundations of the world, God singled you out and decided to make you his own. Knowing your sin, knowing your rebellion, he sends the son on our behalf. He has chosen you individually, personally, selectively, and he's made you his own disciple, his own child. He's brought you into his family. And all of that great privilege then sets you up for this tension and problem and pressure where we will experience this division from the world. There's now friction at the point of contact between the truth and the lie, between the light and the darkness, between those born from above and those from below. And so it's critical for us to appreciate when we experience that tension, whether in active or in more passive forms, however it comes, when we taste that division, it's critical for us to know its root. And its root is that it comes from Jesus' setting you apart. And so, friends, what often is intended to discourage when you can feel the insult, when you can feel the pressure, when someone reviles you on account of Jesus' name, our Lord Jesus wants you to know that it's a sign of your dignity, that you have been set apart for him, and so you will share in what is also his. You will share in all of his great benefits, and you will also share in his sufferings. And friends, this is difficult and hard for us. Several years ago when I was planting a church in Arlington, Virginia, our church was young, primarily young professionals, and many of them worked for consultants in the greater Washington, D.C. area. We joked that our church should have been named the Church of the Holy Consultant. There were so many and that meant for me as the pastor that I received a great deal of consultation, whether solicited or not. Ways to do things, ways to improve, grammatical mistakes that were in the bulletin. All kinds of things. Week over week, there was consultation taking place. 
And I remember at one point expressing this to a friend because I was at a breaking point over some of the criticism that just seemed so outlandish. And he said, Chuck, you have to remember something. It's not personal, it's the environment. Now, I know he was right, it was the environment. But I have to tell you, I didn't like it. I was like, no, it feels very personal. Do they know how hard I'm working, how hard I'm trying? I can't help that there was a grammatical error. I know it was an error, I'm sorry. It's not personal, it's the environment. And friends, we have to remind ourselves of that same truth when we experience the real pinching points of our life in this world. When we actually experience real tension because of our faith in Jesus and because the world doesn't comport with it and doesn't get along with that system and its system works in the opposite direction, you have to remember because it will feel extremely personal. It may even be personally directed at you. It may be someone coming after your job or coming after your reputation. It may be someone coming after your kids. Friends, it can feel incredibly personal. But what we must remember is that it is the environment. And it is also Jesus' promise that we will participate in those sufferings. And rather than a source of shame and defeat, when we feel that pressure, when we feel all of that tension, it needs to be a sign of dignity. That yes, we are identifying with Jesus. He has promised us and he has chosen us and set us apart to be his own, a great privilege. And it plunges us into this tension and problem. Jesus captures it succinctly in verse 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, this is our birthright. It's what we've been brought into by God's design as the world suffers and groans on the way to its redemption. Now, secondly, we also see the substance of this division. If the root is God's election of us, making us his own, calling us into his family to be his disciples, it's also important for us in verses 22 through 27 to consider the substance of it or what causes the division. Jesus says it very plainly in verse 23. He says, whoever hates me hates my father also. In verse 22, we see that the world rejects his word, that is his preaching. Jesus says he came and spoke to them. And in verse 24, we see that the world rejects his works. They have seen and hated both me and my Father. The world has rejected the words of Jesus. The world rejects the works of Jesus. And in rejecting those words and in rejecting those works, they have rejected the Father and the Son. And friends, it's important to understand in the Gospel of John and just a broader scriptural context that this rejection is not a cool intellectual decision that the rejection, the unbelief, is a moral rebellion and turn against the light. And no matter how it may look and how it may get dressed up, it is ultimately about our own hostility and enmity towards God himself. 
It's important to identify the substance of the division precisely, though, because sometimes Christians can, of course, allow other things to be dividing, uh, the dividing issue in their relationship to the world. But please note that the central issue that divides is to be the response to Jesus, the yes or the no. There's a deep and abiding lesson for us to learn from the man who was born blind in chapter nine, and it makes this point so clearly, it may be helpful to turn there. John chapter nine, verses 30 through 34. The man has been healed and then he's brought in front of the religious authorities, not once but twice, and they question him. And this was his answer in verse 30. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he, referring to Jesus, comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Then they, the Pharisees, answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Friends, the issue at hand there is Jesus. The dividing issue should not be the abrasiveness of our personality. It shouldn't be in poor manners. It shouldn't be in rough language. It shouldn't be in accusatory tones. The dividing issue should not be in our person. The dividing issue should also not be in a political opinion or a political platform. There was plenty of that in Jesus' day. Plenty of politics, plenty of division. And yet the man born blind made the issue about Jesus. The dividing issue should not be the areas of Christian freedom in which God does not bind us to a particular behavior but leaves it to our conscience. That's not to be the dividing issue. The dividing issue should not be a strategy of ministry that a church uses to disciple its people, creating in crowds and out crowds because of people's adherence to a strategy. That's not the dividing issue. And the dividing issue should not be a secondary or tertiary theological view, something that the church has never emphasized. No, the dividing issue, the thing, is the thing of first importance. It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It is who he is, the eternal son, who has come among us, suffered on our behalf, died on the cross in order to reconcile us to God, risen on our behalf, now ascended and at the right hand of God interceding for us. This is the substance of the division, the thing of first importance. This becomes very clear in verses 26 and 27, where Jesus then explains the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you follow with me there, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me 
from the beginning. And Jesus explains here the Spirit's work, and it's very specific. And it brings to our attention what it is that divides the church from the world. The Spirit of truth, we are told, bears witness about Jesus, the dividing issue. The Spirit and his work is Christocentric. And so we never bring the Spirit more broadly into saying all kinds of other things. The Spirit is not present and not active if he is not pointing us to Jesus. We're told in chapter 14 that the Spirit comes to teach us by reminding us of everything that Jesus said. Verse 26 of chapter 15, he comes to bear witness about Jesus. Chapter 16, verse 14, he comes to glorify Jesus by taking what is his and declaring that to us. And so, friends, the Spirit's ministry itself points us to this dividing issue, this confrontation with Jesus and the teaching of human sin and of God's grace. And, friends, it assaults our autonomy And it's why there is such great tension for the church in the world. Despite possessing a message of love, that message of love comes with a fatal bruise. And that fatal bruising message is about our inability and about what we have done to sink from our relationship with God. This great rebellion against him and now how we are helpless before him. And friends, this is what no human being desires to hear, that we are incapable of helping ourselves. And that bruise is not tolerated, and it is rejected. It's a ruthless statement that destroys our pride. And friends, then the grounds of reconciliation is announced, and that reconciliation also bruises our pride because we're not allowed to assist. We're not allowed to help. We're not allowed to add to it, to do something, to spruce it up. Because we're incapable and because we're lost in our sins, it has to all be done for us as a pure gift of God's free grace because otherwise it's not free and it's not grace. Martin Luther, who recognized this dynamic, He's convinced that this Christocentric idea, more than anything, evokes the world's hatred. In his commentary on this passage, he writes this. He says, consequently, if you want to have peace in the world, just be silent about me, about Jesus. But if you oppose the world and the worldly church and teach otherwise, that they must be saved by me, and their own efforts do not contribute anything, then just be resigned to the necessity of being hated and persecuted by the world to the utmost. Friends, Jesus is the substance of the division between the the church and the world. Don't allow anything else to be put in that place. Don't allow anything else to take up that position. He's the substance of the division. Third, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16, we see also the threat of the division, the threat for us. 
Jesus says in verse 1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from following, following, falling away. And this is just that raw reality. The pressure of identifying with Jesus does deter some disciples from continuing to believe and to follow. Several weeks ago, we discussed Judas and his turning away from Jesus. You could also see at the end of chapter 6 where Jesus gives the bread of life discourse and several disciples found what he said to be too difficult. And they said, who can accept it? And they turned away. They felt like the world was not going to join in, so they were no longer going to follow. And friends, this is the fruit of the pressure that comes from the division between the church and the world, that it unduly presses on some, and then in their conscience they lose confidence and they turn. And the only place for us to go is to remember that Jesus promised us these dynamics. And that these very dynamics, the pressure that we feel, the tension that we experience, that this is actually not a sign of your judgment, but rather it's a sign of your true belonging to Jesus, that he has chosen you for this. And so allow that pressure, allow that tension to bring a certainty and an assurance to your soul. But this is the threat, that we become discouraged under the weight of it. And finally, we also see the irony of this division. If you return to verse 25, Jesus says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. It's interesting because in the midst of this hostility that Jesus speaks about, about the world's hatred for him, about the world's disgust for his followers, we also see a deep irony in the hands of God. It is this deep ironic turn that it was the world's hatred of Jesus that becomes the source of the world's salvation. It was their hatred of him that took him to the cross. And it's there on the cross, as we've seen from chapter 12 forward, that we have a manifestation of the glory of God himself. That God in his love for sinners, giving his son on our behalf in order to reconcile us, that our sins would be vanquished, that they would be removed. That righteous blood shed on our behalf, now reconciled to God. In his wonderful novel, The Lord of the Flies, William Golding tells the story of British schoolboys marooned on an island. It's one of my favorites. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. As the factions formed and the worst of human depravity emerges, you see a picture of humanity in the boys' behaviors. Jack seeks to kill his rival, Ralph, Ralph was hiding in a thicket as the boys closed in. And so they set a fire to the thicket. They were going to smoke him out and then kill him, or they were going to burn him. Ironically, it was the blaze of that fire that was set in order to be violent, that was set to destroy Ralph. 
The blaze of that fire led up such a smoke signal that a British patrol boat miles away finally saw the boy's location and came to the island and rescued them. And friends, that's what happens with the world's hostility and with the world's anger. It was turned around in an ironic twist in which all of our anger and hostility towards God, all of our desire for independence and autonomy, all of our lack of desire to follow the light, all of that turned around and made the source of salvation for all who will believe. This is what God does with our hostility. And so we see the root of the division. We see what the substance is to be. It's to be our Lord Jesus. We feel the threat that these tensions can undo us. And yet we also see the irony. Friends, gladly suffer with your Lord. He's chosen you for this. It is your great privilege. It is your dignity. Let's ask for his help. Father, we recognize all the ways that we struggle under this division. We know that we don't like it. We don't find it a sign of dignity. Help us to rework our values. Help us to understand that we've been set apart for this high privilege of being persecuted along with your son. May we embrace that and may we also turn away from divisive ways that are not the substance of this division, all the things that we import and insert, ways that we can be divisive from the world that are not helpful. Let our division here at Christ Church be built around Jesus and him alone. Help us under the threat and help us to appreciate the great irony, the beauty of what you have done in redeeming your world and all who look to your Son in faith. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.